0: Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action.
1: Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Robert Kopecki. Robert is a three time near-death experience survivor, a spiritual writer and an Emmy nominated art director. He designed the credits for Showtime's Weeds and designed the art and directed the PBS kids show Word World. He writes a monthly column for Gaia.com and contributes to the mindful word Soul Lifetimes, Beliefnet, The Utney Reader, Inner Self, and many other places. Robert has put his experiences together in a new book called How to Survive Life and Death, A Guide for Happiness in This World and Beyond. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Miriam. It's
2: nice to be here. Thank you very much.
1: Robert, don't you think three near-death experiences is a bit excessive
2: yeah, I think that ought to just about do it. I, I'm, I'm a proponent for, the, for the, the process of taking the road best not taken, I think you could say. <laughs> I don't recommend it to anybody, but apparently it's what I needed to do.
1: Well, your first near-death experience was more like the, the, the classic experiences described by All and Sundry. Um, why do you think they deteriorated from there? <laughs> I think it had to do with the quality of life that I was living
2: at the time, and I think that that's sort of the nature of where we are in any life. I mean, just, just the fact that near-death experiences are also different. I didn't, I didn't really know very much about the genre itself until my book came out, and I was kind of forced to study up on it more. Um, having had three myself, they, each one was different from the other, and each of them were kind of um, classic motifs, so to speak. They were kind of classic formats. But all near-death experiencers, or many near-death experiencers, despite some of the things that we have in common, have a lot of things that are very different, too, from experience to experience. And so I think that probably for me, the, um, it was where I was in life. And I think that that attributes quite a bit to uh, our concepts of heaven and hell, Uh, how, um, where people are in this world, in this life, the kind of experience you're having now, um, it was the same sort of thing as I had in in the afterlife, so to speak. Each uh, situation was different, but each situation was uh, appropriate.
1: Now, you said in your book that after the first one, you kind of filed it away and then went on with business as usual. Um, What was it that really got your attention and started to push you onto the spiritual path?
2: Well, that actually didn't happen until some years later. You know, the the three near-death experiences were spread out over 15 years or so. Uh, The first one was a classic kind of of out-of-body and interview uh, sort of experience where I was in a single car accident. I found myself above the side of the accident and saw myself being loaded into a, a, a an emergency medical vehicle and with people around and tried to talk to people and nobody could uh, nobody could hear me. Um I found myself transported uh, to a, a kind of um very pastoral very beautiful sort of place where I went through a kind of interview, a very casual kind of a uh, interview that lasted for a, a and in determinate amount of time when you say
1: interview is that kind of like the life review
2: no my second near-death experience was a life review and so I'll make that distinction in a bit this was uh, this was more something I actually don't remember exactly what it was but I was with a personage sitting like at a table kind of like at a cafe or in a park and discussing things of great importance in my life the details of which I don't I don't really remember. You know, I I do remember that uh, in terms of the setting, this was a fairly classically heavenly place. It was a, quite a beautiful sort of pastoral experience. Um, but in that at that time of life, you know, I had just been sort of living a non spiritual uh, life at all, just living materially working a lot I was married for the first time to my first wife and you know trying very hard to get ahead that sort of thing so after that first uh, mostly out-of-body experience occurred I filed it away because it wasn't uh, normal you know I couldn't Mm -hmm. really talk to people about it Uh, this was some years ago and there there wasn't the amount of interest as there is now and I didn't feel like I could really discuss it with anyone without them thinking I was a couple sandwiches short of a picnic. <laughs> you know?
1: Actually, read, listeners, um, Robert writes with great humor, so it, uh, I, I expect this to be a rather amusing interview. Um, I really enjoyed your book. Thank you so much. Um, so when you you had the first experience, you kind of went back into a life of stress and, and striving. Um, do you think in retrospect that the universe was really trying to get your attention or, and, and your soul was kind of pushing you into this dramatic second near-death experience to, to shift you off that?
2: Yes, I do. I mean, I, I believe that all of our lives have this interesting structure that certainly in retrospect we can see much more clearly than while we're actually living it. Um, but I, I do think that my, one thing my experience has taught me is that our soul requires a death experience uh, for our own spiritual evolution. And I don't mean to uh, confine that solely to these actual terrible Uh, end-of-life experiences, but also those experiences that we have of sort of passing from one part of our life to another. Um, Many people go through what you might call a dark night of the soul, where our lives as they are tend to sort of fall apart. And we experience kind of a a death there, too. I think our souls require that humility, that complete um, deconstruction of our ego self uh... to be able to to grow spiritually uh... so i you know i still uh... still going into my second near-death experience i hadn't really um adopted a spiritual lifestyle whatsoever i had had one very important experience and that was that i was uh, i was at the deathbed of a very beloved aunt of mine who had who had uh, taken care of me when I was a child and was very important to me, and I was there when she passed, very unexpectedly. And uh, that kind of threw me out of my tracks and sent me into a life that was even less spiritual than before, I think, probably to push me in the direction I ended up in.
1: I don't quite follow. The, the <laughs> trauma of her passing made you bitter?
2: the trauma of her passing kind of knocked me out of my tracks she had in a way been a guiding force uh, to me and even within myself i heard her voice a lot and i still do and, and now i know that this is an an inter extra dimensional kind of a conversation that i can have with her but at the time i was not very spiritually savvy and i felt uh i felt like there was a certain meaningless to the world i i was um really kind of knocked out of my regular, uh, my regular path, off my regular path. And I, I ended up acting out a lot. I moved to New York city. I lived the nightlife. You know, I went through this period of acting out kind of, uh, searching a great deal. I, I'd actually, I'd searched a lot, uh, my entire life. I'd done a lot of traveling as a young person and I found myself in a lot of places that you would consider a very spiritual, uh, Next side, spiritual centers, but I wasn't a spiritual person at the time. I wasn't thinking of my life that way.
1: Well, you did go to, um, as you say, like the Far East and, and um, places like that. So when you say you weren't a spiritual person, were you still absorbing the um, worldview of these cultures?
2: Yes, you know, I was always looking for something from my very earliest childhood. I felt like there was some mystery that I needed to solve or some solution to the state of the world as I witnessed it. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the time that I was a very small child, I felt that way. And um, I took off at different times and, and did significantly long travels. At one point traveling for a year or so around the world. And uh, you know, going to a lot of ruins and a lot of cathedrals and temples, and I traveled to uh, to uh, the Yucatan and went, uh, kind of explored the Mayan underworld and things like that. You know, without without really having had a, a sense of of uh, being a spiritual explorer, I was doing it anyway. You know, and then intermittently, I had these these near death experiences too, but. I think the, the, the thing that interests me and that I wonder why this is the, the nature of, of my particular path, I didn't get it earlier. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I guess some people just need to be hit in the head uh, hard enough to get one's attention. I was slowly changing towards a spiritual path, but uh, you know, it took what it took for me to finally get there.
1: We're kind of coming up to our break, so I don't want to introduce a deep topic, but it's interesting that you um, went through this, am I, you know, going crazy or this is something that I experienced, but I can't really tell anybody about it. When did that start to shift? When did you feel um, that it was more normal in quotes.
2: Well, you know, it wasn't until after my third near-death experience, I experienced that kind of dark night of the soul and I came out the other side of it with a real interest in finding the solutions that would work in my life. And that included meditation and study and service, all things that I had had little or no interest in before that time. Mm -hmm. So that was really the point when that happened.
1: Okay. Well, we want to hear all about it. So we are speaking with Robert Kopecki. How to Survive Life and Death. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Free your mind. Expand your soul. OM Times Radio. IOM FM. Are you trying to get from point A to point B and need a little advice? Connect with the counselors at Ohm Times Advisors. Whether you're looking for a life coach or a spiritual intuitive, the advisors participating at advisors.omtimes.com were carefully chosen based on their gifts, skills, and professionalism. Ohm Times Advisors, connecting you with the best advisors in the business.
1: Do you have time to read that inspiring book or that blog post you've been meaning to get to? In your busy world... How do you improve yourself and keep your life going? I'm Lisa Kay, and my Between Heaven and Earth radio show can transform your life just by listening. Be uplifted with inspiring topics, positive stories, and ideas that really work. Between Heaven and Earth radio is conscious living for your soul, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time.
0: Hi, this is Sylvia Henderson, intuitive life coach and energy healer. Are you ready to elevate and rise way above your normal? Be sure to listen to my show Intuitive Transformations on Om Times Radio, Sunday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern. Get the inspiration you need to transform your life. Host your show on iomfm, the radio network of Ohm Times Media. One of the more recognized brand names in the conscious community and is backed by the extensive marketing reach of OM Times. Hosting a show on IOM FM immediately connects you with our extensive, dedicated community. The cutting edge of conscious radio, OM Times Radio, IOM FM.
1: Best is Robert Kopecky and his book is How to Survive Life and Death. Robert, maybe this would be a good opportunity, first of all, to tell us um, about your blog. Uh, you don't have a regular website, but you blog at?
2: It's called Art, Faith, and the Cocoa Lion. RobertKopecki.blogspot.com, <laughs> Robert And yeah. as you mentioned, too, that I write for Gaia and for The Mindful Word and Soul Lifetimes uh, as well. Um, so you can find me at all those places.
1: Very good. Mm-hmm. The ubiquitous Robert Kopecki. <laughs> Robert, tell us about your second NDE. What, uh, h- how did that move you along on your path?
2: Oh, sure. That You had mentioned uh, the, the life review format or motif of near-death experience, and that's what my second one was. I, um, I found myself in the middle of a very bright white cloud. So in, in that sense, it was heavenly as, as in terms of the kinds of imagery we think of heaven in. And um, out of the middle, I was never alone. I wasn't alone in my first near-death experience, nor was I alone in my second one. But I never met the personage that was actually with me. I felt like they were behind me and supporting me and very benevolent. And in this case, I heard someone kind of gesture uh, tell me to look, and I looked into this cloud, and a screen opened up in the midst of it and began playing these kind of interactive uh, life episodes that that I I often mention were real. They weren't the greatest hits. (laughs) It wasn't the stuff that uh, you... I'd wanted to remember. In fact, I hadn't really remembered any of them until I witnessed them again in these the circumstances. And each one played uh, this kind of cogent uh, sort of moving moment uh, from my life when I probably should have been paying attention and I wasn't. And there they they were lessons about presence and about uh, how important it is for us to be there for one another and to to listen because in any moment of life wherever whatever life you're in wherever your life is at any moment you can get those kinds of lessons that will help uh with your spiritual evolution in a big way you know so in that first near-death experience the out-of-body one i got that perspective the fact that i am an energetic being who occupies a physical body you know we're done two different things in that sense and on this second one, I got that lesson of, of presence, of how uh, important w- what we might call the eternal moment that we live in is, you know.
1: Now, that's interesting because the, the first out-of-body or an NDE was very dramatic for you. I mean, you you floated out of your body, you could see it objectively, and yet you were still not internalizing the essence of yourself as being an eternal spiritual being in, right. in a physical body. So then you had your second NDE with the life review. You actually decided to change your life at that point. Um, what happened then? I
2: did. I moved from New York City to, uh, to the desert of Arizona. I come from the southwest originally, from eastern San Diego uh, County. So it was kind of like going home, but it was also, I think, like going to a going into nature a little bit more. But I I still wasn't really on a spiritual path at that time. And in fact, my, my life, um, I was quite confused. My life got quite difficult at that time because the changes that I'd made damaged to my career. Uh, I was in a relationship. I was in a variety of relationships where I was likewise looking for something, but I I didn't know what, you know? <laughs> And uh, not realizing at that time that wherever I went, I took myself with me, you know. And so I was trying to cope with things in the ways that I always had. I, ha- I wasn't yet trying something uh, completely new, which was uh, this kind of surrender into spirituality. You, and that was where my third near-death experience happened, too, was, was there in Arizona.
1: You placed that third near-death experience at the end of the book. Um, so did any of the insights that you achieved come before it or did they all come after it as a result of it?
2: You know, I think, I think that they all came before. I think they all came at the time that my life was going on, but I, I was not internalizing them fully. I wasn't, um, I, I wasn't realizing that the answer was right in front of me, right within me, all around me all the time. And so I was still really caught up in what we might consider an egoic life or a material life. And it really wasn't until that was completely uh, smashed, uh, until that, that sort of delusion of who I am and who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to fit in the world was really um, completely vanquished, which happened after my my third near-death experience, um, some a little bit of time after my third near-death experience, but um as you as you mentioned earlier that was even more difficult uh, that was the worst one and i guess it says something about you if you you know have the worst <laughs> you have a, <laughs> a near death experience that's worse than your other ones right
1: it's, the universe is saying can you hear me now
2: <laughs> right it's really not the kind of collection that you want to have on your bookshelf but in this case um again I, the, uh, being in that place in my life of confusion, and in, in many ways, I think what you might consider a kind of hellish uh, circumstance. Uh, what a lot of this has brought me to are these questions of how we engage in consciousness and what that, what quality that has in terms of the life we live. live. Some people have near-death experiences, and they clearly go to hell, so to speak. Other people have near-death experiences, and they encounter these beautiful, heavenly spectaculars. Um, Each of mine were rather humble in their way, but each one passed on this kind of lesson about uh, the fact that it's really the quality of how we're living that determines where we go in terms of heaven or hell. Uh, Some people are born into this life in very terrible circumstances, and others, in, in wonderful circumstances, that they're not able to make anything out of. And that was kind of my case. I wasn't really uh, grasping the important parts of life uh, and I wasn't appreciating everything that I had ha- should have learned by then.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier uh, things like the dark night of the soul, things that are sort of little deaths that move us onward. And you have three kind of radical suggestions for the reader. Uh, and I know that a lot of people who report, who've written books about their own dark night of the soul, focus very much on the last one, which is radical surrender. But mm-hmm. tell us about your three radicals.
2: Yeah, they're uh, radical kindness, radical forgiveness, and radical surrender, which I call tips for my tips for happiness. Um, you they're all grounded in one thing and that is the lesson of any kind of death whether it's passing on from one part of your life in a difficult way to another part or if like me uh, you know you wake up on the street with an emergency medical worker looking down at you and saying he's back you know that kind of thing that is humility Um, these experiences Uh, these kind of soul death experiences deliver us to a place of of utter humility where there are no more vestiges of all of those expectations and judgments that we have about our material or ego life and it's that place of complete humility that we're really able to move on from that we're really able to grow in an exponential way spiritually I think Uh, so those are all necessary for uh, the three tips for happiness that I have the the first one being radical kindness which I like to propose as a challenge to people to um, to try it out during the course of a day or two and just just what it sounds like be as absolutely kind as you can be to everyone no matter what station they are in life uh, whatever, whatever role they're playing in your life complete strangers or your boss or whoever and watch what happens it is truly astounding the way that your life will transform as you become uh, connected to this kind of underlying network or fabric of kindness that is alive in the world. It's really astounding. So I like to pitch that to people to give it a try. I really,
1: I really enjoyed reading uh, those sections about radical kindness because it's very much like the golden rule. And even though many people and many religions pay lip service to it, it really tends to be only lip service.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, the golden the golden rule I do think of in terms of the Tao or karma as well, too, this kind of life path that we set out for ourselves that we engage in. But a radical kindness even goes a little bit beyond that, I think, because when you actually try it, it the amazing thing about it is that there is like this conspiracy going on that you never noticed before. I I had it happen to me in such a dramatic way that I almost had to pinch myself. It seemed so crazy. I tried just being extremely nice to people, and the next thing I knew I was meeting these people, it was as though I had known them my entire life. I was actually being moved to the front of the line, so to speak, in situations, you know, at the market or something like that, or... When I'd be thinking about something that I didn't know very much about and I was wondering about, somebody would offer exactly the piece of information that I was looking for, that kind of crazy thing. You you, um, you may notice at times when you have that going on, you have that kind of mojo going in a situation, somebody may be a complete stranger. You look them in the eyes and they look back at you with this understanding and this kind of profound friendship. Like, ah, there you are, you know there you are. Okay, I can talk to you. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I discovered that it is such a uh, an amazing thing. It really kind of goes beyond any experience that I had had in life up to that point.
1: So this radical kindness or personal expressions of love are sort of priming the pump for the play of synchronicity in your life.
2: Absolutely, yeah, where these meaningful coincidences occur with, uh, with so much resonance that you know that they can't be completely coincidental. And the more open then you are to them, the more often they happen. And radical kindness, of course, uh, helps in a big way for radical forgiveness, which is, uh, which is necessary in those situations where you aren't able just to simply share love with uh, other people because usually something bad is happening, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Somebody's doing something or has done something bad to you or that you perceive as being bad that's difficult, and uh, what do you do about it? You either...
1: No, Exactly. Well, let's explore that when we get back from our break. We are speaking with Robert Kopecky about his book, How to Survive Life and Death. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Feed your soul with waves of consciousness on OM Times Radio. OM Times Magazine is one of the leading online content providers of positivity, wellness, and personal empowerment, a philanthropic organization. Their net proceeds are funneled to support worldwide charity initiatives via Humanity Healing International. Through their commitment to creating community and providing conscious content, they aspire to uplift humanity on a global scale. OM Times co-creating a more conscious lifestyle
1: hello i'm miriam knight of new consciousness review inviting you to my new show where i interview the rising stars of the conscious awakening we'll explore the many faces of consciousness and action and intriguing perspectives on life the universe and everything in between Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern on The Rising Stars Show.
0: Do you want to be a better communicator? Do you want to better connect with the important people in your life? Do you want to enrich your relationships? If so, join me, Matthew Cooper, on The Positive Control System Show every Wednesday evening at 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Ohm Times Radio. I'll meet you there. IOM Times Radio, IOM FM.
1: Bert Kopecki about how to survive life and death. Robert, let's talk about the L word. What in your understanding is the nature of love? Well, in, in my
2: understanding or in my experience of it, love is like a, like a dimension unto itself. It's like a quantum field of being, so to speak, where all the wonderful things that happen in one's life issue from, grow out of. Uh, even bad things that happen are generally because of a lack of, of the presence of love. So underneath everything and flowing through everything, And if we open our hearts to the perceiving of it, there is this field of love flowing through everything and around everything all the time. That's why radical kindness works the way that it does is because you just engage in it and it begins to to make aspects of your life manifest out of love. And other people are aware of it because it's a very real thing and it extends to everything uh, from... Clothing to architecture to food is probably the way most of us uh, think about it. One always knows that the most important ingredient in a good meal is love, and uh, it's a real thing. It's a real tangible thing that the more we engage in, the more solutions it will supply us in our life, and uh, the more of these moments of fulfillment and purpose will come to discover.
1: So, why is evil? And uh, trauma and pain, such a feature of the human experience. Is this a trick question, Miriam? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you know, um, I'll tell you something about my three near-death experiences that I that I really want to pass on to everybody because I don't. I, I'm not going to get into the real specifics of each one. I do in the book a little bit more, but. The, the real takeaway to this is that I was engaged in consciousness um, after, you know, the, the quote-unquote death each time. So there was this experience of this field of consciousness, which I equate with love in many respects, too. This kind of warmth and freedom and lightness. And uh, an aspect of intuitive intelligence that I felt completely a part of as though there were no obstacles or boundaries between me and this larger uh, kind of loving mind, right? So to me, that's what underlies all of this. That's what's before and beyond this life and runs through it with such power. And, and, and it, uh, it ends up being the, um, the degree to which we're able to engage in it that creates, uh, um, that creates our ability to find purpose and find meaning in life, you know? Um,
1: People have gone through uh, bust-up relationships. They will find themselves um, really in a very dark place without love. Um, what advice have you found useful to get people over that hump?
2: Yeah, the the pain and the evil and the difficulty in life is really a human experience. That's, that's kind of my point in talking about the field of consciousness. That field of consciousness and love is there always. That's what I experienced. When I came back into my body and I started back into the grind again... Then the difficult things that I needed to cope with as a result of the way I was living came about. And, and you know, I had these very hard parts of life occur that are inevitable for all of us. The, a big way of coping with it is the identification of the experience across the board with everyone. So that, uh, like my second tip for misery
1: loves company.
2: Well, we all experience all of these difficult things, regardless of whether we want to or not. They're inevitable, and and that's kind of the basis of radical forgiveness too. It's not as much fun as radical kindness because it's when things are are hard, when things are going badly, but when evil is imposed on one, or when difficult situations arise and pain, uh, that kind of thing. Um, The the fact that each of us is going through exactly the same thing and dealing with it in our best way, uh, lots of things are being projected into this world by the human experience of others. And so they're just projecting it. They're not doing it to you. Life is not happening to you. It's happening for you. It's difficult to realize that when things hurt that way. But you can allow those painful Place, places and parts and those apparently evil things that people do to define you and then you will have to go on carrying that as your self-definition or you can recognize that these are people who are going through trauma and difficulty themselves in the life experience and projecting what, uh, what difficulties they're having outward. And the, the answer to that then is radical forgiveness where you simply let go of it completely and you bring love in as much as you possibly can and if need be, you move on or you are present with uh, with love and with that kind of presence that I talked about earlier too.
1: Well, one of the points you make is that love begins at home. We often forget that.
2: Yeah, it's right here. I mean, it's so easy. I, I, I know that... Uh, I'm probably the most difficult person of all with my wife, who is the person that I, who's closest to me and who I love the most. So I, you know, you'd think I could get that straight. I'm so nice to everybody else. Why am I behaving that way to my own most beloved?
1: I actually meant to oneself because that's <laughs> often our biggest challenge: is loving oneself. That,
2: that is very, very true, and that's one thing about radical forgiveness too that I, I that slipped my mind right there too is that. That's often where that begins. In a way, we hold things against people because we're holding them against ourselves, you know.
1: I thought that was a really good point, that we're we're actually projecting, um, until we can release it from ourselves, we're holding it in our own energy field and we don't let it go.
2: Right, yeah. We. Um,
1: and, it, and we forgive for our own benefit, not for the benefit of the other person.
2: Right, yes, absolutely. And we're... All, the, the kind of situation that I just described about what people are going through and how oftentimes they're just expressing their own psychic trauma, it doesn't matter whether you're there or somebody yeah. else is there, that's, the tr- that's true for myself, too. I have all of this stuff in my history and all of these experiences that I carry with me, too, and I can't hold, my, hold them against myself, so to speak. I need to radically forgive that. This is my human condition. I'm actually a lighter-than-air, effervescent, energetic, spiritual being inside of this body. And this body goes through these kinds of difficult experiences in this life.
1: Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that a sense of humor doesn't hurt in getting through it as well.
2: No, it's pretty, it's pretty essential, <laughs> I think, you know.
1: I'm curious, after all of these uh, traumatic uh, near-death experiences... Did you develop what people would call a psychic sense or intuitive sense?
2: Yes, and, you know, I think that I'd always had that. And, of course, I'm a big believer in the fact that we all have that sixth sensory capability all the time. I think that, uh, I think that there's even plenty of proof of it out in the world, whether it's from uh, just ESP experiments to the Global Consciousness Project to your very own experiences with, uh, with synchronicity and the like. Um, the fact that you can be thinking of somebody and they'll telephone you right then. We're all at a quantum level, so to speak, connected, uh, very intimately and very immediately with one another and with all of life so that, uh, so that we really can sense and can hear in many ways, the voices of many ways, the voices of the world, the voices of all the creatures, uh, the, um, the experience of uh, Mother Nature as an expression of consciousness globally, Yeah, I think that we're, we're opening up, uh, so many people in the world are opening up to this expanded consciousness that that kind of um, extrasensory perception, so to speak, as they used to call it, uh, is something that a lot of people are starting to almost take for granted, I think, in many ways. It's quite a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, I I certainly see it in my world of of literature. Um, Getting back to your third uh, leg of the stool of radical surrender, what is it that we're surrendering to whom? Radical surrender
2: is a strategy. It's a kind of a strategy. Now, normally, surrender doesn't sound very good to us. It's like, what, me surrender? No, never. (laughs) How dare you suggest such a thing? But with the the case is that um, you know life is a lot bigger than any one of us. <laughs> Certainly, much much bigger than me. And most of my pain in life came from this this uh, false belief that I in somehow in some way could control it. You know. Now that's not to say that there aren't uh, there isn't cause and effect, and I don't reap what I sow like everybody else. There aren't things that I can do that will result in more beneficial effects. But at the same time, it's, uh, um, it's a, it's a much larger kind of, uh, fluid, um, extra dimension that is carrying us, whether we're aware of it or not. I know the native Americans have a great expression about rowing hard to, to go upstream in your canoe. You're getting tired out, and you. Just, what you should do is just turn around and take your ore out of the water, because it will carry you in the way that you're meant to be going, mm-hmm. right? And the the flow of your life is carrying you all the time, uh, in the same way that plants grow and animals live, and the the, the sun uh, goes around the earth, as they used to say, you know.
1: So. Surrender is really surrender of the illusion of control or the attempt at trying to control rather yes, than that's... just getting into the flow. Of... Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. That's correct. And I, I think Einstein had a great uh, saying about how we have a, a choice to make whether this is a benevolent universe or, or not. And, The fact is that when you look at all the beauty that is part of nature in this life and all of the wonderful kinds of experiences that we can have and things that we can make out of this sort of plasticity that these lives are, that it's quite clear to me that this flow is a very benevolent thing. That's why I equate it to love. If I surrender, if I open my heart and I surrender my urge to control my life, into this flow of love and I follow that I allow that to guide me and to point me towards what what actions I should take then my life just has this kind of construction that I could never dream of myself Hmm. things happen in a much better way than I could ever make them happen
1: well you've got somebody rather more wise at the helm (laughs) okay yes we're going into our final break We'll be right back. We're speaking with Robert Kopecky about how to survive life and death. Be back soon.
0: Conscious Media for Conscious Minds OM Times As difficult as it is to believe, there are places in Africa where human traffickers sell albino children and their body parts for use in magic rituals. Humanity Healing International is actively working in Uganda to change this paradigm. The Albino Rescue Project finds albino children who are at risk and places them in safe schools and environments where they can learn and grow free from fear. To learn more or to sponsor a child, visit humanityhealing.org. Humanity Healing is where your heart is.
1: Hello. Hello. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, host of the Inspired Parenting radio show, where every week we bring you empowering information from the diverse fields of conscious parenting, education, neuroscience, consciousness, health, and metaphysics
0: to support you in nurturing the best in your children. So if you're interested in understanding what shapes your children's minds, spirits, and hearts, join me every Thursday
1: at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and prepare to be inspired.
0: Circle of Hearts Radio is a sanctuary on the airwaves. Join me, Grandmother Elia, in the circle on Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern, as I share
1: information to both enlighten and nourish your soul.
0: Host your show on IOM FM, the radio network of OM Times Media, one of the more recognized brand names in the conscious community, and is backed by the extensive marketing reach of OM Times. Hosting a show on IOM-FM immediately connects you with our extensive, dedicated community. Your conscious connection to a more mindful world. OM Times Radio, IOM-FM.
1: Surrender. Um, What tools have you found serve you the best uh, to develop your sense of connection.
2: Well, certainly meditation is a big part of my practice, and a big part of whatever kind of sane-sounding realizations I may have come to after all these knocks on the head that I received. The um, the. Do you prob- do it every day? I do pretty much every day. Yeah, and here in the uh, in the East where. It gets so cold. It's been so cold lately. Um, it's difficult to meditate outside during the cold season, um, which I really like to do. So, in the from spring to summer, through the summer and into the fall, I'm outdoors meditating a great deal, which I highly recommend to people. But the uh, you know the nature of life is that the, what you're thinking about as a man thinks, so he is. You know, as is uh, mm-hmm. spoken of in, in numerous different
1: energy goes where attention flows right yeah and where
2: my thoughts are is often determining how happy or not I am at any given time and meditation permits the uh, permits the realization of that kind of um, dialogue that we have within ourselves so that I have an inner voice that's generally carrying on like a shark that needs to swim incessantly that's moving from one thing to the next, and that oftentimes is trying to assign these labels and uh, distinctions and judgments and expectations to everything, and that's all the hard stuff in life. Uh, When I meditate, I can get in contact with what the Quakers call the the still small voice, or that inner voice, that kind of intuitive intelligence uh, that is part of a radical surrender, and this kind of realization that we're part of a greater consciousness or greater mind. And sitting in meditation, then I can kind of separate myself. I don't necessarily want to be in that insane, with that crazy voice that's constantly uh, engaging in the outer world. I like to uh, find some peace and quiet and some good common sense in that inner voice where I am. And so uh, that is often um, my guide or kind of my benchmark uh, for getting by in a, a difficult world in a difficult times is being able to um, being able to stop thinking about it quite the same way. A lot of us will say, "I don't even want to think about it that way," you know. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you can not think about it uh, if you want to. And meditation is very very good for that. And then likewise, meditation uh, will put you in a place in terms of your, uh, realization or engagement in consciousness, which is similar to where I was in each of my three NDEs. If you meditate enough, if you can go to that place of stillness within yourself, there's a point at which all externals kind of fall off when all material, all the material sort of fades And you can join to this greater sense of the eternal, I believe.
1: Well, isn't that tapping into the field of being or essentially the field of love?
2: Yes, yes, I equate it all in the same way. You can call it the Planck field, you know, the quantum field, Mm -hmm. the zero point field or the field of love, uh, the, the realm of compassion or... The kingdom of God, uh, samadhi, nirvana, um, to me those are all uh, describing the similar things about this engagement in consciousness that I experienced. The one consistent thing from near-death experience to near-death experience was this engagement, this greater engagement in this field of conscious, loving consciousness. Mm-hmm.
1: And you do point out... Um... The work of the Heart Math Institute and so on, that there is a physical sensation of opening of the heart. And you have a lovely exercise. It's the only exercise in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, well, I just asked that you just uh, stand up and grab a hold at your right about your solar plexus, just like you had a o- big overcoat on. And then just simply open it up and breathe out, and allow your heart to open, and to allow all that energy of tension out of yourself, and all of that flow of love that's around you in. I mean, the, the point of these lives that we live is to remove the obstacles to love from our lives. That's really the main point, I believe.
1: I love the, an equation that you have in the book, which is love plus honesty equals all solutions. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, I, I think that speaks pretty well for itself. <laughs> I mean, we've all probably just elaborate it. on it because it's, it's just <laughs> those, wonderful. Those two things put together really do provide us with the solutions to just about every problem. Um, it's but like you do story.
1: point out that we really have to be honest with ourselves. And sometimes that is a very uncomfortable thing to do. It is
2: because we are prone to denial, to cognitive dissonance, things that we don't want to think about that cause us uh, pain are unfortunately the place that we have to look, right? Joseph Campbell, I remember saying, where you stumble is where you need to dig, right? (laughs) And it's not really something that uh, any of us want to do in particular, but the results are so fabulous in our lives, uh, that we, if we just get over that fear of facing the reality of you know that real self honesty, that's where all the healing begins, and that's the important thing about humility that I was mentioning earlier. That place of that complete humility that we equate so often with with something bad or with losing or something you know that's derogatory in our lives, it isn't at all. It really is the point from which all wonderful things can happen. When we get our sense of ourselves and who we're supposed to be and what we expect for ourselves out of the way completely, then the world itself just opens up as this fabulous sort of medium of, of co-creation that we can experience in a whole different way.
1: Well, I don't know how many times we have to hear it from people who have experienced it firsthand. I would hope that to really get to that point of being able to express love honestly and, and find the solutions within the field of love, but through the exercise of love, is something that we don't have to die to be able to achieve. <laughs> well, what about you, Robert? Are you hopeful that we can do that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, in a funny way, you do. You don't have to really die. I don't recommend you do it my way. You don't have to do it. <laughs> Like that, But in a way, you do have to, to die in this figurative sense, this metaphoric sense, where um, you, you lose all those things that you thought were so important. Most of them really aren't. And you let go of that life, and a whole new life becomes possible. Um, obviously, because I don't believe we ac- actually die, I know from experience that we don't. We simply move from life to life. This experience, that experience of, of death, is necessary for our soul evolution, for our spiritual evolution. So you so can um,
1: you yeah. were you were a very successful illustrator and designer and animator. Are you still doing that? Are you concentrating primarily on spiritual writing now?
2: Yes. No. I still design and direct animation on a daily basis 3 4 days a week I do that and the rest of the time I'm writing it's i my book just came out uh, just a year and a half ago or so and i w- i didn't know i was going to be an author uh, <laughs> just a, just a few years ago and then you know now i find myself writing for all of these different places this like i mentioned before this is a, a course of events that i could not have ever imagined for myself and yet here i am you know and so uh I'm slowly segwaying, I think, into a a life that's concentrating uh, just on passing along these lessons that I learned um, the hard way so that you don't have to do it that way, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the the fond hope of all parents, but uh, somehow kids still need to make their own mistakes.
2: Well, in all of us, you know, life life is about loss as you get older. There's an awful lot of loss. And so my book is designed to help ameliorate that experience by being able to put it into a greater perspective, you know, by having that uh, that perspective and, and that uh, presence. And then the purpose that, uh, you know, in my third near-death experience, I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay there. Mm-hmm. But I was gently and benevolently Coaxed, or might, you might even say pushed, kind of through this membrane back onto a sidewalk in Arizona after having been beaten up by skinheads <laughs> and, uh, and opening my eyes and having this fellow uh, say he's back and realizing that my purpose was just to be who I am, just to be this source of expression for the consciousness I would experienced, to uh, remove the obstacles to love in my life and to be present for others. Um, sometimes it doesn't seem like we're doing a whole lot with our lives, but we may very well be doing much more than we ever thought we were.
1: And working for the greater good, did, have you found the peace that you were seeking, Robert?
2: Yes, I find it all the time. I find it every place I look, and it, a lot of it has to do with experiencing life by using my heart first. Mm. And not that uh, that running um, dialogue that I have in my head, you know, mm-hmm. by experiencing that um, that uh, intuitive intelligence that arises from within uh, when we're uh, seeking that peace within ourselves.
1: And you have put it all into your book, actually, very succinctly: "How to Survive Life and Death: A Guide for Happiness in This World and Beyond." Robert Kopecky, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Miriam. It was a great pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: And I will remind you that his uh, blog is at Robert robertkopecky, that's K-O-P-E-C-K-Y, dot And of course, our website is ncreview.com. For New Consciousness Review, I hope you'll visit us and do join us next week. Until then, I am Miriam Knight. Thank you so much for being with us. Much love. Goodbye.